Hey everyone, welcome back to Navigating Netflix Originals. As always, I am Madison, and today I'm joined by Jamie. Yes, you are. Woo woo! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being on my podcast once again. Yes, of course, anytime. <laughs> so today, my fellow Netflix navigators, we Ooh. are going to a genre that we have not done yet, which is kind of surprising because Netflix has a lot of them. So we are going to be discussing a documentary series. A docu-series, if you will. A, a docu-series, if you will. And Netflix has a lot of both documentary series and just like standalone documentaries. And we haven't discussed any of them yet. And I'm not entirely sure why. Yeah. <laughs> Simply because we're like, oh, I'd rather watch something fiction or whatever yeah. that week. So, but this week, as you know, welcome to 2020, yeah. <laughs> we're going to educate ourselves in the docu-series called Sex Explained. Yes. And as our audience is probably very well aware at this point, we like talking about sex. So <laughs> Why not? this one was right up our alley. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this series has five episodes, each split into a different sort of um, area concerning sex. Right. So I guess it makes sense to go episode by episode. And That's what I'm thinking too, and kind of discuss each one a little bit. Yeah. Um, before we do that, what was your overall impression oh, yeah. of the series? Uh, my overall impression was that it was, it was very interesting. I liked the things they went into because I think that when you see a sort of sex documentary series, I assumed it was all going to be about like bondage and like different right um, kinks but i liked i liked the different things they talked about i thought it was actually like more informative it was yeah and i feel like sex education in our country is terrible and the fact that netflix has this available to basically everybody because everyone knows somebody who has netflix True. and so like kids in high school could watch this to kind of like supplement for the fact that their sex education in school is shitty <laughs> and exactly. actually learn some things about it because i actually learned some things oh, yeah. about it and i you know am somebody who has very enthusiastically read a lot of like research articles on you know different types of the area of sex just because i'm interested so like the fact that i actually learned a few new things um was impressive to me so definitely props to the documentary what to, what do you think the most interesting thing that you learned was because i certainly have my answer for this i wonder if we have the same one <laughs> that horses <laughs> wink their vulvas oh when gosh. they're ovulating <laughs> i forgot all about that but oh i did make God. a note what did i say like yeah horse and there's like a video of it happening and there it's is. the weirdest thing i've ever seen yeah so um did you then try to wink your own vulva it's not possible i just i'm just gonna say that much and that's that's all yeah, <laughs> i could not wink my vulva like a horse can i mean that's fair i think um i think that takes the cake from one of the, the, <laughs> that's one that, the most interesting fact <laughs> the most interesting fact that i recall from all of this aside from the actual like medically interesting facts is the fact that lesbians when watching a slew of different porn <laughs> are actually slightly more attracted to bonobos having sex than yes. a man walking around nude at a beach. Yes, and, and a, a bonova, for those who don't know, is, is like a primate. Yeah. So <laughs> lesbians are more attracted to monkeys having sex than they are to a naked dude walking down the beach. <laughs> Which I guess perhaps makes sense. but <laughs> Which is just 
That is hilarious. That might actually be the best fact <laughs> in this documentary. Oh, man. <laughs> it's right up there with the horse winking vulva. I mean, yeah, that's hard to that's hard to pass. <laughs> that's hard to get the image out of your mind. Of I know, well. I see it now. <laughs> this is just there, winking at me in my brain forever. <laughs> Sex is ruined for me forever now. Oh my god! Or improved? I guess we'll find out. Yes, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so. The very first episode is sexual fantasies, which I think is it what is. everybody expects yeah. a sex documentary to talk about. So they dive headfirst right into it. <laughs> they really do. And like the most surprising, I mean, not surprising, but like kind of surprising is like you hear that BDSM and like leather bound fantasies are like a thing. But to see statistics on it and like one person said that 79% of people have fantasized about BDSM. Yeah. I found it quite flooring. Like that seems like yeah. an excessively high amount of people to me. Yeah. I definitely like, I feel like that's not one of my like sexual me fantasies. Me neither. I'm like, like, oh gosh. I don't want to tie up or be tied up. No. <laughs> exactly. But you know, I can kind of understand a lot of people live in like live lives where they don't have a lot of power or control over anything yeah. at all so like the idea of bringing that into their sex life i can i can understand like why it is as popular as it is but it's not for me which is yeah. fine <laughs> yeah and i guess that number also includes people who yeah who want to take on that power and be the dominator right in addition to those yeah. who want to be submissive so like i guess that makes a little more sense but it's still like almost 80 percent is that's a high number and i think that like the 80 percent is anyone who's ever fantasized about it which i mean i can see that like if you just thought about it one time and jerked off to it like then that you would be part (laughs) of that 80 percent you know like you fantasized about it once kind of thing i'm sure like that was i'm sure there was like a big spike in it after the uh 50 shades of gray Phenomenon oh, I'm sure. Well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you ever watched or read Fifty Shades of Grey? No, I've not done either. I've I've watched it strictly for educational yes, purposes. Yes, of course. <laughs> I wanted to know like what the hype was about, and I'm like, I- I'm just gonna watch it and see. And it really didn't do anything for me. I'm just like, this doesn't. No. Okay. <laughs> That's maybe what the you're books. Sure. Maybe the books are better. Have you read them? I mean, the books are always better, but I have not read this book. No, no, I didn't want to dedicate more than a couple hours of my life to that kind of research. Maybe if I had really enjoyed it, I would have read the book. But yeah, yeah, that's fair. But speaking but... of books, like the fact that we learned in this that there are so many books that talk about like forced sex fantasies. Yeah. And that they were published. So like, yeah, I just like it's it, that was also kind of flooring to me. Well, yeah, they talk about how, like, for sex or rape fantasies, like, more than 50% yeah. of people studied, like, have reported having this type of fantasy. And they do make, like, a really good point, which is that our fantasies don't actually right. correlate to our sexual desires. Just because you fantasize about something doesn't mean that you actually want that to happen in your life. And there's not really a good way to explain why you might want to fantasize about it, because... It's like, why are you attracted to somebody? You don't really know. There's no real reason for it. Yeah. And... But, um, but it's still, that 
statistic did surprise me a little bit. Yeah. And I did, um, I wrote down the quote by Lisa Diamond about basically what you just said, because I thought it was pretty good. So I'll just read that now, even though sure. it's not quote section. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of very, she says, there's a lot of variability in sexual fantasies and they don't tell you anything reliable about you. If you have fantasies that disturb you or scare you, or you wonder what they mean, they don't mean a lot. So don't worry so much about them. Right. And that's how the episode ends, which is pretty cool. And I think that it's it's important to know that as long as your fantasies, if you if you have like violent fantasies, as long as that's all they are, is just fantasies and right. they stay inside your mind and you have no interest in actually acting them out, then it's fine. Whatever. <laughs> you know, we're all weird in our own ways. <laughs> yeah, true. True. <clears throat> and I think what did they say? It was like 20 percent of people like only like 20 percent of people reported like actually acting out any of their fantasies right. that they had. So most people fantasize about things that never actually happen right mm -hmm. true but um so that that's like basically one of the three pillars of sexual fantasies that they name the main categories which would be i guess power and control power and is control. like bdsm the other two being group sex and places <laughs> <laughs> or or like scenarios that yeah you haven't experienced before. So like having sex on an airplane right, or yeah. having sex in public, that kind of thing. I think they, they say that, I think they said group sex was like the most common mm -hmm. sexual fantasy, which makes sense. Yeah. Well, but, um, for you personally, between, we know power and controls out, between group sex and places, yeah. which is more appealing. You don't have to go um, into detail, but like. Well, I've, <laughs> I've had fantasies of both. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but, um, I feel like the the novel, like the places, like doing it in in weird locations, appeals to me more than okay. having like a lot of different people involved. <laughs> well, I don't know if there have to be a lot of people. Involved. Well, I guess that's true. <laughs> having a threesome, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what about you? I think I could see something like a threesome more likely than being in like public with the risk of being caught. Like that's <laughs> that that risk that pe some people like really like. I, yeah, it doesn't appeal to me. That's that's not the that's not like what I picture. It would be more like just outside in nature, <laughs> sure. like just away from like people in general. Okay, so <laughs> in like the wood a, in a room at a remote you know destination, in a, in a private island in a lake. <laughs> in a lake, <laughs> <laughs> all outside. <laughs> nice, nice. Just floating in water. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Were there any other things in this episode that you found surprising or? Um, they talked. I I I found this. I guess it wasn't really surprising, but I I did learn this. Um, during this episode, that we have a lot of like racism and stereotypes mm -hmm. of different cultures tend to creep into people's sexual fantasies yeah. and you might not even realize it because like there's there's so much porn out there that's like the white girl and the black guy and like the black guy is supposed to be sort of almost predator-esque like in that he's right. like dominating this white girl kind of thing and that's like racism seeping right into porn and you don't even like see it that way until someone points it out to you and you're like oh yeah that makes sense yeah <laughs> so I, I found that interesting <laughs> right and not only racism but also like um cultural influence on race as well like how they found that the majority of asian americans fantasize about white folks probably yeah. because of that sort of push to yeah. acclimate and like integrate into society 
that that floored me. It was a really high number, like in the more than 80% yeah. of people surveyed said like from all races said that they fantasize most frequently about white people. So that means that like most races out there, their sexual fantasies, regardless of whether or not they are white, is about a white person. And that could have a lot to do with the fact that most porn is like they're white actors, you mm -hmm. know, so like you're fantasizing about what you're watching. Sure. But that still surprised me. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. Had a couple good quotes from this episode. Okay. <laughs> they're listing off like how like the mother figure is like a really oh, common fantasy too. and that they get to like they're like milf the other flavor of mom <laughs> is that what they said <laughs> yeah that's funny. i was like oh dear and then at one point one of the girls was just she's like i love getting into cis boy butts <laughs> she did yeah she's like i don't i'm not gonna apologize for it <laughs> no, like, so good for you <laughs> oh my gosh um, yeah, I think that's pretty much fantasies, yeah. Well, that's sexual fantasies, kids. If you're having them, it's they're completely normal. Exactly. All of them are. <laughs> Don't worry yeah. about it. <laughs> and this, this one of the other people said whose name I did not write down. Um, the I ugly, never write anybody's name down. <laughs> the ugly can also be really gratifying, I think she said, or satisfying. So like there you go. Don't be... Yeah. It, as Lisa Diamond said, they don't mean a lot. Exactly. As long as you don't actually have a desire to bring violence into your real life, then you're fine. Don't worry about it. Just jerk off. There you go. <laughs> you heard it here. <laughs> so that brings us to Attraction, which is the second episode in the series. Yes, it is. And we don't really learn a whole lot about why physical like attraction with <laughs> no. somebody actually occurs, but we do hear a lot of speculations about why it might be. Yeah. <laughs> Because we don't really know, as basically the summary of this episode. No one really knows. <laughs> True. <laughs> we all just get that fuzzy feeling in the lower gut <clears throat> sometimes. Exactly, you know. <clears throat> and, of course, scientists and sociologists and biologists, they've all tried to, like, explain astrologists <laughs> as to, like, why one person is attracted to another person but then not to a third person kind mm -hmm. of thing. Like, why are we distinguishing? Like, why am I attracted to this person, but not to that one? And there's no real reason yeah. <laughs> that we know of currently. Yeah. But let's speculate wildly. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did name us the four pillars of attraction that they think kind of go into it. True. So there's like physical appearance, geography, similarity, and reciprocity. So um, I can see that. Yeah, I could see that too. Like all three of them, or all four of them kind of coming together. So mm -hmm. Especially like the similarities and reciprocity to like for me specifically, like if you have share common interests and also you express like a yeah. desire for me as well, like that's two, that's, those are both really like attractive qualities. Exactly. <laughs> and not only the like de desire for you as well, but also the fact that as the one guy was saying, like you share something about yourself that's very deep and emotional like you expect you know someone you know a loved or what i want to say like a partner to do a that love back. interest yeah, yeah yeah so like basically having deep heartfelt discussions with somebody yeah. if you're just talking at them and they're not like responding that's less attractive than <laughs> right. if they're also <laughs> sharing you know their own experiences and not just listening to what you have to say yeah 
And I, I did like the aspect <laughs> of geography environment here, showing that, like, you know, depending on, like, we people sort of get in their minds, especially in the U.S., I think, with what we see in terms of, like, the ideal body and stuff of what the ideal man or woman looks like. But um, it is interesting to see in figures that people who live elsewhere in other countries, like, will choose an ideal body size that is different, whether that be for the mm-hmm. reason stated for what they were saying. So, like, um, people <clears throat> that are very thin in, I forget which country it was, but they're, like, more so um, associated with HIV. And so for people that's, think, like, less attractive. Yeah, I think was that was, like, someplace in Africa. And then, like, they surveyed the same people, people who had lived in that country in Africa who moved to the UK, Britain. Yeah. yeah, the UK. Then, like, their attraction types, like, what they found attractive changed within, like, 18 months. You know, yeah. they went to favoring the, the thinner form. Right. So it's kind of, like, environmentally based on physical attraction to to right. an extent so. yes um i think that it was really interesting that like a lot of times scientists like to say well our attraction is rooted in um our desire to mate and produce offspring so like <laughs> right. you're attracted to somebody because you want to have sex with them and reproduce your species but then like one of the people who was talking on the show was like well fertility and physical beauty have absolutely no correlation and if they did like we would be living in a world that was just full of beautiful people because we would have you know bred all of that the rest of that out kind of thing only favoring the the beauty because they because they were fertile but that's not the case everybody is fertile kind of thing right Mm -hmm. so i thought that was an interesting point (laughs) yeah that's true i i kind of found the discussion also of um, sort of like women's shifting ideals for men uh, linked potentially to like their involvement in the workplace. So like before yeah. they were looking for someone who was like a provider, a stable, a support. And then once women's roles in the workplace increased, they sort of then started shifting towards trying to find someone who is specifically more attractive right. versus like, <laughs> you know, with all those other qualities. Because like if you're financially dependent, why does, you know right your partner doesn't necessarily need to be as much or as well much and like provider. and like on the flip side of that then two men started favoring women who had financial yeah. security over women who were just simply attractive because like then they're like hey you know there's two of us in the relationship or whatever that are making money that's more important than you just being arm candy or whatever <laughs> yeah exactly <clears throat> so that's kind when- of interesting one of the things i think i found most interesting on like this whole the series not even just this episode was they talk about selfie angles and the way that like women always and i know this is true for me like we always raise our phones up to get like a higher angle of it which i guess they the reasoning that they're saying that like subconsciously is that it makes your head and your eyes look larger and the rest of your body look smaller whereas men always tend to angle the candle like the camera up so that they look like larger and taller and I know that's very true for like how I take selfies. It's true how for like how my fiance would take a selfie of yeah. himself. Like that's and I'm like, wow, I've never even thought about that. I just take a, a angle from up so that you don't see my double chin. Like that's all <laughs> I'm thinking is like go higher, get the double chin out of there. <laughs> maybe there's more to it. How do you take a selfie angle? I feel like I tend to take a selfie angle like head on. 
Okay. So it's just, it's not like down. I would never do a down because then you're just getting like 80 chins. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I go up. <laughs> but um, but I couldn't find a selfie of you on my phone when I was looking. Uh, <laughs> but I'm like, oh, I don't actually know. I can't remember how he hates selfies and I haven't saved any of them. So. I mean, definitely, <laughs> definitely in like, you know, back in the day in like 2000 whenever selfies were really big yeah uh, on myspace and stuff you had to do an angle from above i think even for you even had for to. guys like there was no other option it's the only way you could hold like your phone. phone just like said beep beep nope when you tried to do it from a different angle you know? <laughs> <laughs> yep i'm sure that's true it did <laughs> no it is interesting though to see like these sort of subconscious things played out it's so weird and it's like probably it's sub like brought on by looking at other people's mm-hmm. selfies. Like True. we all, for the most part, are online on social media, and we're looking at pictures that people are taking of themselves, both male and female, and non-binary. And mm-hmm. so, like, we're being influenced by like, oh, well, this girl took a selfie of herself from a high angle or whatever, you know. And they're just it's like a subconscious influence on you then as to how you should be doing it. Right. Again. I'm just quoting my double chin. (laughs) I want that out of the picture. (laughs) Exactly. But maybe there is more to it. Yeah, could be. Um, I guess like the other thing that I found interesting that I had heard before, but it was interesting just to like, I don't know, kind of see some of the potential science behind it was the fact that like, as a woman has more male children, like things start happening in the body that environmentally can lead to um, a potentially like more, you know, ultimately gay son. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought it was the other way around. Mm-mm. So they said like oh, gay men. I guess I misunderstood more... that. <laughs> yeah. So um, <laughs> one of the things they said is like gay men are more likely to have older straight brothers because oh, like as yeah. you go down. Yeah. It. Um... I just misunderstood that fact. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So it's interesting. <laughs> I feel like um, I feel like that is something that's like getting like more acknowledgement these days because yeah. I feel like I've heard it from multiple people. Well, yeah. and it was like the reasoning that they gave for it too was interesting because it was like more of some sort of like hormone or mm-hmm. something was like they their theory behind it anyways was like being introduced to the fetus during development, which could like influence that, and that's why there's like cases where like identical twins yeah. um like can you know you have literally have the same dna but yet one will be gay and one will be straight so like something else is happening in utero that's making right. that happening after you know the original conception and division of dna happened <laughs> like something else happened during development to influence that mm-hmm. and i thought that that part was what struck me as interesting <laughs> yeah exactly and reassuring in that it's kind of more support for the you know, baby, I was born this way type right. mentality. Exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> I think that's all I have for uh, attraction. Did you have any quotes or anything or more interesting facts to talk about? Um, I, f- I had one quote where the one girl was just like, I'm super into arms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I can't relate to that. That was, the same, okay. <laughs> that was the same girl as the butt. That was the butt girl. Yes, she's into arms and cis boy butts. Yes, specifically. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> she was very specific about that. What about you? Anything else? No, I think that's it for me. My, I mean, the bonobos fact was in there, but that's what right, we haven't yeah. spoken of. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, 
like okay so like the fact of like where they tested that the only information they give about how they actually came to these conclusions was that they monitored people's genitals mm -hmm. while showing them porn and i just want to know exactly what went into that yeah <laughs> like what kind of instruments were hooked up to people's genitals to get these readings. i mean for women i would have no idea i imagine for men well, it's as easy as like a little rubber band or something right men it would be pretty like a lot easier to to monitor yeah i'm thinking specifically for women like is there some sort of probe in their vagina trying Maybe. to like determine how wet it is <laughs> what you're gonna have to do is find one of those studies and participate <laughs> and then you come back to us and let us know <laughs> I just want someone to tell me what they experienced. <laughs> yeah, that's probably fair too. <clears throat> oh, true. Oh yeah, so that sums up attraction. The moral of it is we have no idea why it happens. Oh, the other interesting fact about it, which I kind of already knew, was that like if when the first time you like meet somebody who you develop attraction towards, you feel like you know the butterflies in the stomach, the beating heart, and like that's the same like chemical that's being released in your brain is when you eat sugar yeah. and also when you take drugs. So like you can just replicate that by eating a large piece of cake. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> who needs attraction? We don't need no man, girls. Just go out and eat some chocolate. There you go. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So the Let's next see. one, this gets more in the next three are more kind of like technical aspects mm -hmm. of, of sex, like sit down for your sex education class kind of thing. Yeah. So we're going to talk about birth control. We are. Wow, I learned a bunch favorite. about birth control. It's one of my favorite topics to discuss. Yeah. <laughs> I love birth control, <laughs> which, okay. So this video really kind of puts a negative spin on hormonal birth control for women. I think mm -hmm. that there's a, a, all of the women who they are interviewing and talking about who have been on hormonal, like the, the pill basically seem to have very negative experiences with it. Like the, the headaches, the mood swings, the cramping, the spotting, like all of the possible weight gain. And for me, I've been on hormonal birth control for almost four years now, and I have not had a single negative side effect. I've actually had a ton of unanticipated positive side effects, which is like decrease in flow, decrease in cramping, like mm -hmm. decrease acne <laughs> i haven't had any weight gains or mood swings like so i think that it kind of they came off a little bit aggressive towards hormonal yeah. birth control which i didn't love but so definitely give it a try girls if you haven't you know done it yet i know there are a lot of people who do have negative experiences with it but for me it's been wonderful <laughs> yeah and it was i mean i totally understand why they were that way at the beginning of the episode because they were talking about like the advent of birth control and how well, the original right. had like <laughs> 10 times the required dosage of estrogen or whatever and so that caused clotting and you know severe right. damage don't take 10 pills a day don't do that now it's more <laughs> just, just regulated one. and stuff i did i did find it interesting that like apparently only in India, you can buy a non-hormonal, like, birth control yes, pill. That interested me a lot. I wonder how effective it is, yeah. though. Once, because the concept, once a week. the concept of it is that you take a pill once a week that's not a hormone. It's, like, not, like, it's not, like, estrogen or progesterone. It's something else that just kills. It, like, causes, um, can't was remember that, exactly what they said. Was that the protein happen. blocker one? I can't remember. 
I don't it, something happens <laughs> that <laughs> it, it does something that like kills sperm after it enters your uterus basically and i can't remember why like what exactly they were ingesting yeah, i, can't remember I wonder they didn't give statistics on like how like successful it actually is regular you know hormonal contraception runs 91 to 99 percent effective depending on how well you are at taking it mm -hmm. um so i wonder what it is compared to that but they didn't say <laughs> yeah i mean maybe because they just can't get you know accurate readings on it yeah or they can't get a hold of it to actually like test a large population yeah maybe. um one of the things I liked that they talked about was like the importance of informed consent, um, yes. which now in research is like, you know, obviously a huge thing. And like, even those of us who do linguistic research still have to do, you know, informed consent statements and all of that stuff. Um, even though it's like largely not the same as medical you know, right. studies. Um, right. But I liked that they talked about that and showed kind of like the fact that like it's it's really upsetting to see how ridiculous and uncaring specifically the US was about just yeah. like testing like for example forced steril sterilization on Puerto Ricans and then a testing out this birth control that ultimately you know killed a bunch of people yeah it's like can we not. Yeah, it was like basically the U.S. during the beginning stages of trials for birth control didn't want to test it on their own citizens, so they went to a poor country. I don't know if they were technically a colony at that point or not. Puerto Rico would have been at that point, but um, they went to Puerto Rico and mm -hmm. just kind of told women, hey, here's some birth control, and didn't tell them that they were the first women to ever get right. this and that they were part of an experiment to see whether or not it would work. Um, so that's pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah. To say the least. I guess, like, another interesting fact I learned from this episode, though, or, yeah, episode three, was that copper is apparently sperm kryptonite. Yeah, I knew that because I've discussed <laughs> IUDs with my gynecologist in the mm. past. It's more of, like, because my, my fiancé and I don't want children, so, like, I was contemplating like a more long-term birth control option. But I've had such, again, I've had such great success with just taking the pill that I'm reluctant to try anything else because I don't know that it would be as effective as, you know, with all the other positive side effects that I've had from taking the pill. So I ultimately didn't go for it. But mm -hmm. I know that it is, the IUDs are very painful to have implanted, which is not something that I'm interested in. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> But the other side of this episode is they talk about how condoms are pretty much the only birth mm -hmm. control option for men currently available and how kind of shitty that is because <laughs> they're yeah. half the reason that people get pregnant. Sure. <laughs> so there should be more research done into finding like an effective male birth control. There should. And it was kind of, I forget what the figures were, but like it seemed like at least 50% of men seem like they would be interested in at least right. trying the product if it came out. However, there's a point I want to make about this because yeah. it, they didn't talk about it in this series at all, but it's something I've read about where other women have like speculated that this would happen. If uh, an effective male birth control pill is developed and goes through human trials and gets on the market, 
the likelihood of men lying about being on it to have to to be able to avoid using a condom really oh, increases <laughs> so watch out for that if that ever happens make sure you get proof that your man is actually on the pill and not just wanting to you not use a condom with you which i guess is partly perhaps why some of the women in the episode were like yeah i gotta take care of my shit so i would still (laughs) use my own contraceptive (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's kind of like how the episode ends is with like most women saying that even if there were effective male options they would we're still likely to just assume the responsibility of taking birth control themselves because we're the ones that have to, are directly affected by it. If we become pregnant, we're the ones that have to be pregnant, you know, True. whereas like men, if they get somebody pregnant, there's no like negative physical like result to their body, you know, like they mm-hmm. don't have to become pregnant. <laughs> yeah. True. So, yeah, which is also why men are less likely to take a birth control pill that has any sort of side effects. Like the ones that have been developed and tested, the side effects that men experience are basically the exact same side effects that women experience on the pill. Men are just unwilling to to go through those because they don't have the risk of getting pregnant. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Men kind of suck is that is pretty much the moral of this episode. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> um, yeah, this was also the episode where we learned that horses wink their vulvas when they're ovulating. True. Just want to point that out. <laughs> In, <laughs> In case you, you want to yeah. watch that scene. <laughs> it's at minute. Tw- no, I don't know, actually. I don't actually know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the other interesting fact about this is that it is speculated that the modern day heart shape that yeah. means very like you know everybody knows what a heart is it means love kind of thing actually comes from an ancient birth control plant that was used to both prevent and end pregnancies like the shape of the the pod of the plant was like shaped like the modern day heart yeah which i did we've always loved birth control as a gender (laughs) (laughs) there you go uh apologies for like the motorcyclists revving their vehicle outside my window apparently yeah well you know what happens with where you live <laughs> true uh, all right i guess all it right. brings us to episode four yeah it does so fertility. let's talk about fertility <laughs> um the first thing i need to say is how gross that they speculated that a tiny homunculus was like oh wound up inside a sperm or an egg <laughs> So, like, ancient ideas of what the sperm and or the egg contained was, like, a tiny, fully formed living human being inside of a sperm cell, um, like a homunculus, and that once it was shot into the woman would just start developing into a person, basically, was how men originally viewed their sperm. (laughs) (laughs) Tells you a lot about men right there. It really does. Um, And the cool thing about this episode is that it continues to talk about men, but infertility in men, which is something that's not really discussed. Very true. Um, And I guess like, you know, they say that as much as 40% of the cases of infertility is actually a male issue and not a female issue. And it could be as high as like 50, 50, Mm -hmm. you know, we just, we don't know for sure because a lot of men are very reluctant to get tested. You know, they just like to assume that if they're not getting pregnant with their current couple or their current partner, you know, that it's the woman's fault. There must be something wrong with her, but that's not always the case. Can we also talk about though, that woman's reaction to her husband, not having sperm? I know. She. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sure 
she's always wanted children, but like that woman is the worst. I know. <laughs> Even like they were had to have had months to prepare for this interview and she still couldn't like keep the disdain out of her voice about how he didn't have no sperm in his testicles. <laughs> and I'm like, this shattered oh my, calm down. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, there are other options, like clearly. And also, you know, you can still like get implanted and have your own damn baby. Like I know. And I and I don't understand. And maybe maybe this is just me having evolved over the past few years to to the idea that like family does not mean biology or genetics. Right. But I don't understand the draw work to people who want to have a child where it has to be biologically theirs. There are so many children out there who don't have loving homes like if you have to feel like you have to have a child like go and adopt one if you can't have one easily biologically right. why does it have to be your own genes i just don't understand that drive right well i think it's in i mean not to offend anyone who's listening who has children <laughs> but i think like there must necessarily be a certain level of narcissism like you want to produce a small you yeah maybe um, but but yeah, I mean, like there are plenty of instances where, you know, found family is stronger perhaps than even biological family. And there, yeah, as you say, there are a lot of children that could be adopted. Um, there's right. always like sperm banks. So like you could at least have a partially right. genetically your child. Yeah, I guess in it, I'm not talking about like so much if you're able to just have a child naturally and healthy, yeah. that's yours. That's, you know, that's great. Do that. But like if you can't, like that's not the end of the road you can right. still have a baby like it just might not be genetically yours and that's such a huge hang-up for so many people that it, it has to be theirs and i'm like why it will be yours once you adopt it right <laughs> it exactly legally becomes yours at that point all right <laughs> you and you bought can... a baby exactly well <laughs> you can just think about like the amount of like strifes that exist between biological children and their parents like yes. not having a like having a biological child does not mean that you are going to have a child in the future right. like they might choose to just disown you and i don't know there's i don't have any statistics to back this up but i feel like if you're adopted like you're more likely to be grateful and thankful to your parents for choosing to you know like have you and and instead of just like oops i'm pregnant right well, <laughs> again because then it's like the only thing really is the desire for children and like love essentially exactly but you know there's so. lo there's lots of you know variations <laughs> and we could go on forever but that's true so let's actually go back and talk about the fertility in the female body is actually mm -hmm. only about an eight hour window out of every oh my 30 gosh. days <laughs> where we have an egg that can become fertilized and if you are having sex around the time when you are, you know, expect to be ovulating, sperm can stay in your vaginal canal for like three days, I think they said, mm -hmm. before it dies off. So as long as you're having sex like around that time, around that eight hour window, you should become, you know, pregnant on average. You know, it takes about six months on average to become pregnant that many tries. Yeah. But um, I want to I want this is an interesting fact, and I was disappointed that they didn't talk about it in the in the documentary because it's something that you can easily find online but about 50 percent so half of all fertilized eggs die within the first five to six days of fertilization because they never make it down to the uterus to implant which uh. is why it takes about six months on average to become pregnant because you could be fertilizing an egg every month and it's just not making it down to your uterus to actually implant before you become pregnant so yeah 
that just putting that out there as a <laughs> as a fact for all the pro-lifers who might be listening there you go <laughs> think about that and then maybe become pro-choice i mean yeah exactly it was also interesting <laughs> just to see like all of the sort of what did they they kept referring to it as a labyrinth but like yes referring <laughs> I mean, to, it kind of is <laughs> yeah it was clearly seeing all of the sort of steps and hurdles and the fact that like even if the egg does make it down to the uterus like if the lining's not quite right it won't stick or yeah. something might destroy it i don't know it seems very like a precarious mess Right. And I think that like evolution put all of these obstacles and, and labyrinths in place to like make sure that only the strongest embryo makes it to implantation and becomes a pregnancy kind of thing. Right. So, I mean, I, I'm very glad that all these fertility treatments exist, but it kind of like we're taking out that natural selection aspect of it. If we're just pulling a sperm out of a dish and <laughs> sticking it inside the egg, it's not had to go through all these obstacles. So like, are we creating an inferior species by doing this? Just, you know, Perhaps. <laughs> what we do know about the species is that male sperm count has halved since our grandfather's age holy shit which is crazy <laughs> and the fact that they they suspect that it is linked to plastic yes is they pretty crazy the the statistics was that in 19 or since 1973 no hold on in 1973 <laughs> i got this written down backwards the average sperm count was 99 million per like ejaculate i think Mm -hmm. And then, like, today, it is only 47 million. Mm -hmm. And that number is continuing to decline. So, like, every year, men are becoming more and more infertile, basically, is what that means. At kind of a fast rate, if we went from 99 million to 47 million in, like, 40 years, like, that's... Yeah. That's a pretty fast rate of decline. <laughs> and, yeah, they're attributing it to chemicals and plastic. I mean, it would be interesting to redo this study in another 40 years if this movement towards eradication of plastic moves forward. <clears throat> like, you know, yeah. we're using a lot of metal straws these days, um, metal uh, or glass water bottles instead of plastic, even though they are BPA-free and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Um, it would be interesting to see if that general trend, like if it increases or if it decreases after like all of that has been put into place. See, I maybe it would. I can't see it like turning around and going back the other way, or at least you remain know, where, stable, yeah. right? Like we might be able to stable it or slow the decline, but plastic is everywhere in our right. society. You know, even just like putting leftovers in the refrigerator, you would normally pull out a plastic container to stick it in. And I'm trying to switch more to glass, but I still have a lot of plastic containers. Yeah. So, so like, yeah, that's kind of like picturing a future of infertility that is more the man's fault than the woman's you know True. because his it's the man's sperm count that is declining rapidly yeah <clears throat> i mean that's that's rapid in my opinion how many years is that i gotta do the math hold on 2020 <laughs> minus 1973 so in something. 47 yeah. years we went from 99 million sperm per ejaculate to 50 47. or 47 so that's a drop of 52 million it's more than a million a year yeah <laughs> that's like in 47 years you guys aren't gonna have sperm left <laughs> like what are we gonna do then <laughs> then so, there'll be no more no more children 
exactly. That's what I'm saying. So that was just kind of a crazy statistic that I did not know was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the um, the other cool thing about this episode was like the discussion of the ovarian tissue implant thing where like women with specifically oh, with yeah, cancer, yeah. they like, I guess, shaved off the... <laughs> tissue and like froze it for a while and then like 20 years later like put it back in and then they were able (laughs) whatever i think he said 20 like you can come back 20 years later um i don't think you'd be fertile anymore like (laughs) you'd be like 50 (laughs) all right ready to have my baby (laughs) and then they like slapped it back on there and it started acting normally again which is that was interesting yeah I know that like a lot of people who are going through cancer treatments, they recommend to either freeze sperm or freeze eggs. But I guess like the new innovation is to freeze your ovary tissue, because if your ovaries are killed during chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. you can take this frozen living tissue and reapply it to the ovary and it will bring it back to life, basically. (laughs) So crazy. Which is not a thing I knew could happen. Nope. Uh, any other um, interesting facts about episode four? No, I think that was all I had written down about fertility. So cool. now it. we can discuss the most terrifying <laughs> one of these. Your favorite episode. Uh, childbirth. Childbirth. Let um, me sum up the entire episode in two words. Please do. It's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need to know. Childbirth is horrifying. Can I just say that what was truly horrifying at the beginning of the episode and all throughout is them showing the like pressure test, stretch test oh of like God. the cervical <laughs> tissue. Yes. I just <laughs> it made my cervical tissue nauseous. Like watching them stretch it out. Until it like, <laughs> like breaks. Ah! <laughs> tears apart. <laughs> and then I just died a little bit reaffirmed my decision that I never ever want to be pregnant (laughs) (laughs) oh man so for those of you who do let's talk about childbirth (laughs) yes let's what I found most interesting about this episode is that we went from like throughout our history we went from having no sort of medication Mm -hmm. in childbirth to having way too much medication during childbirth back to a movement of having no medication during childbirth so it's like we we tried the medication we way overdid it and then we went back to just more like natural birth (laughs) yeah and i like that like this discussion on natural birth isn't like fully in support of of complete natural like pain-free or um painful i mean no medication birth but at the end they kind of wanted to be like we might have even gone too far in our desire for this like natural birth thing, um, which was interesting. Um, even though the majority of the women in the stories were like very defeated by like the fact yeah. that they had used an epidural or, you know, all this other stuff. So it's kind of a conflicting message, but right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like we evolved and, and they didn't even talk about this, but in my opinion, like the most natural way that we should be giving birth is squatting. Like yeah. that is the way that we were evolved to give birth is in a squatting position. It's what opens up our hips and our pelvis the most. And, you know, that's the way that we should be be giving birth. But like most people do it like laying on their back. So they're not letting gravity help them right. to, to push the baby out. You know, they're having to do all the work themselves. Right. But, and of course, yeah. like the motivation for that is so that 
modern doctors can like see into there and right and do what they need to do but yeah there may be fewer complicate there fewer complications if exactly. they were able to actually squat which i guess is like why sometimes now you see like um birthing stools that put right. you in the squatting position and things and like I guess- that like my thought, my field of thought on this is that before you actually are in labor and getting ready to give birth, you've had, you know, ultrasounds and imaging done, you know, if the baby is healthy, you know, if it's in the right direction to mm-hmm. do a head first delivery. So like, if everything looks normal, there's no reason that we shouldn't be encouraging women to give birth in a squatted position, you know, when possible, obviously, if the baby is breech or, you know, coming out face first, and the doctor needs to be able to get in there to assist you know by all means lay on your back and allow that to happen but i just think that we try to like make medicine more important than it is like Mm -hmm. it's very important to have there on standby but it doesn't need to overtake the experience (laughs) right yeah well and they kind of like referenced also the fact that like doulas are making a resurgence and how apparently helpful that's been to women in like in the birthing room um, because they have someone who's like coaching them and telling them that things are normal and like Mm -hmm. reassuring them. (laughs) Um, It's, it's interesting for sure. Yeah. I thought the other, like the other thing they talked about was like the pain that women experience during childbirth. Mm -hmm. Obviously religions love to say that it's the woman's fault because Eve ate the apples, so now we have to be in pain during childbirth. But that's right. not actually the reason. <laughs> the reason is that we are a primate-evolved species, and we evolved, unlike most other primates, to walk on our two legs <clears throat> instead of on all four. So our hips got narrower, and our brains got bigger, meaning that our heads got bigger. So we have narrower spaces with for babies to come out of yeah. with babies who have bigger heads. Yeah. So, and the reason that like people are like, well, if that's the case, why didn't, you know, we evolve away from pain? And it's like, well, because it works and natural selection doesn't care about pain. It just cares about survival and this works good enough. So right. <laughs> it's just going to keep happening that way right. is essentially, you know, what they said. <laughs> I'm like, well, that makes sense. <laughs> right. Well, and speaking of survival, like I was kind of, Maybe I shouldn't have been, but I was kind of surprised to, to see that the first like recorded successful case of a cesarean section that saved both the baby and the mother yes. was like 18 something. That oh, seems incredibly yeah. late. My me. my favorite fact about that was that it was actually performed by a transgender man. So I yeah, that was, that was cool too. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't something that was discovered until long after the the man was dead, but he would actually been born a woman in some other country and moved to South Africa and performed the first you said that you think that it's like late for that to have happened i thought it was early (laughs) is it to like have been doing these forever but like that's the first case of a surviving mother well i think that they like back then they were only doing c-sections in cases where the woman was like already dying or dead kind of thing so like he was actually then able to also save the mother's life so that was kind of cool yeah, by giving them lots of banana wine or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just get her really drunk first. <laughs> I don't know how you make wine out of bananas. Do bananas ferment? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> TBD. <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah. Um, I, I I like that they also touched on the important fact of inequality in treatment for women 
both yes. in the UK and the US. So we got the statistic that black women in the UK are five times more likely to die than white women in yeah. the hospital and three times as likely more likely to die in the US. Yep. Um and I it's like extraordinarily depressing to see that this is still the case. And I, yeah. I imagine like the only way to sort of rectify that is to make sure we have more people of color in the medical field. Yeah. Get more black women in the medical field. That's what we need. Yeah. <laughs> and also they said that, what was it? 250 babies are born every minute in the world and 800 <sighs> women still die every day during childbirth, mostly in third world countries. That's, but yeah. still, that's it's a still high number. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like people forget that, like, death is a possible side effect of childbirth. Childbirth, yeah. Even, like, in the U.S., you know? Yeah. You could die. Definitely. Yeah. I I have a friend who came very close to, to dying during childbirth. Oh. I'm not entirely sure on the details of what happened, but I know that she was in the hospital for a long time afterwards and lost a lot of blood during the process. Oh, but yeah. both her and her daughter did survive. Well, that's good. Scary. Yeah. Good. Yeah, scary, but good. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Um, any other things um, from childbirth? Yeah, just don't do it, guys. Like, it's scary. <laughs> I mean, do it if you want, I guess, but holy shit. <laughs> yeah. And don't feel shamed if you have to use a painkiller. Yeah, I think that's like the big th- takeaway from this is that while we should be honoring like our body's natural way of giving birth, don't be ashamed if you need medical help, you know, if you need to have an epidural, if you need to have a C-section, like don't let that ruin the experience for you if you're looking forward to, to giving birth and having a baby, you know, just go with what your body needs. Exactly. Kind of and like you grew a child. So like, right. you know, you've already done the work. <laughs> you've already done a lot of work. If your body needs <laughs> a little help getting it out of that tiny hole, it's okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. I think that about sums up childbirth then. So, yes, that is our sex education lesson for you today. I hope we explained some facts about sex and reproduction that you didn't already know. Yes, me too. And (laughs) yeah, so this episode is a little longer than normal, but we had lots of things to discuss. So um, if you have any reactions towards the things you saw in Sex Explained or if you have suggestions about what we could watch in the future, since now we've watched a documentary, we right. are open to watching more. <laughs> um, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter. You can do so at NNO Podcast. Or if you have any thoughts about us doing documentaries in general, like if you liked the fact that we are doing a more serious podcast about an actual like topic of discussion instead of just on a fictional you know, show or movie, you know, let us know how you how you felt about the the structure of this podcast. And like Jamie said, if you have any suggestions, let us know at navigating Netflix originals at gmail.com. There you go. And so we'll be back next week with something. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) And until then, goodbye.